Hi, I'm Meredith Roden, and I'm the host of the Hatchet's weekly podcast, Getting to the Bottom of It, covering the happenings around Foggy Bottom and GW's campus. I'm here with our senior news editor, Parth Kotak, to discuss the Faculty Senate meeting this month. At the Faculty Senate, administrators gave an update on some information that they had presented last fall, which is a breakdown of salary for faculty based on different tenure statuses. So can you just give us a brief rundown of what how, how this year's data compared to last year's data? Sure. So what we reported originally last year was that 5 to 7% of faculty had salaries that fell below the median range. And so we saw that administrators have made adjustments uh, to certain faculty salaries that were below the mean based on, you know, talking with the dean of that department and determining whether like their faculty was artificially low or whether it was a result of like low productivity in terms of research, that sort of thing. Um, and what we've seen is that each uh, semester they've been evaluating either a different set of schools or they've evaluated the same schools but a year later to see if salaries have changed after that. And they're basically making periodic adjustments. We heard at Faculty Senate that roughly 30 professors have experienced adjustments upward in their salary, um, out of which represents maybe 1% of total faculty. What did administrators talk about when they said, when they were talking about doing corrective steps to faculty salaries, why did they say that was so important to them? So Chris Bracey, who's the vice provost for faculty affairs, um, said that this is something that he's been thinking about for a little while. um, And one of the things that he wants to do moving forward is to make uh, the adjustment process to salaries proactive instead of reactive. Right now what happens is they might bump up some faculty salaries, but then find that after they remove certain outliers that faculty salaries tend to drop again below the mean and then they have to make another adjustment. So they're trying to figure out a way to develop a model that's robust enough that they can just make a change and have that change, uh, you know, stay constant, you know, moving forward. While this was obviously a big part of the meeting, but also there was a lot of more nitty-gritty details that kind of got drawn out into a longer argument. Can you tell us about the fight over the strategic planning process? So last month, the Faculty Assembly, which is a body of all faculty, tenured, non-tenured, got together and passed a petition that directed uh, committees of the Faculty Senate to to investigate parts of the strategic planning process and report back to the Faculty Senate at large and report back to the Faculty Assembly at large. there was contention today at the debate about whether the faculty organization plan, which governs the two bodies, uh, allows the faculty assembly to direct um, faculty senate committees to, you know, actually, you know, do anything. Um, and it was the parliamentarian's opinion that it, the faculty organization plan didn't confer that authority onto the faculty as, uh, assembly. So, um, so how did that lead into like the argument that ensued in faculty senate, basically? Sure. So the larger argument was over the petition broadly. Um, faculty, some faculty believe that the um, the timeline for the strategic plan is really, really small. Um, they're concerned particularly about the 20% enrollment cut and what that's going to mean for uh, their departments, for example. Um, and particularly diversity was a, a topic that people hit on a lot. Um, we heard from one faculty member that like he wasn't concerned necessarily about how you know this is going to affect the university's finances. He's more concerned about how it's going to affect the university's demographics. Um, but President LeBlanc at the meeting was was quick to reassure people. He mentioned that um, they've made a decision to push back the strategic plan final vote that the Board of Trustees is going to take from their May meeting to their summer retreat, which is usually held at the end of June or so, which gives them an additional five weeks to work on the strategic plan. 
Um, he also mentioned that despite reducing the freshman class last year, this uh, the class of 2023, this incoming freshman class, he mentioned that despite decreasing uh, enrollment in the current freshman class, the class of 2023, um, the class is still the most diverse ever. And so he mentioned that, you know, we can achieve the twin goals of cutting enrollment while increasing diversity. And he said that, you know, all of the administration is committed to that. The, pro- the new provost is committed to that. The new board chair is committed to that. He's committed to that. Um, so that was his attempt to sort of alleviate some faculty concerns about this. Um, but tensions are still high. Yeah, people are still definitely concerned about you know the, the process in general. Thank you so much, Parth, for sitting through that three-hour meeting and reporting back to us. Of course. For the second week in a row, GW has been racked with scandal online again. This time for a video that was posted to Snapchat showing a showing a drunken exchange between a couple of students. I'm here with Health and Sciences editor Shannon Millard to talk about what we know so far. Shannon, what's what's been made public? Uh, so the video itself appears to show two individuals, uh, two GW students who are making anti-Semitic remarks. Um, and we interviewed the girl who was featured in the video. Um, we haven't been able to get into contact with the person who was off screen yet. But she said that she was intoxicated the night the video was taken and doesn't remember making the comments uh, nor um, the video being filmed. So this has obviously not gone over well. Generally, um, it was posted to Facebook. There's been, you know, like hundreds of comments made on the video. Can you describe the general flavor of the backlash, essentially? Uh, Yeah, so there's been a lot of negative comments on those videos, um, calling the comments anti-Semitic and... um, a large subsequent response from a lot of student organizations on campus. So some, a lot of student organizations like the Student Association, uh, the Jewish Student Association, uh, GW Hillel, uh, One Voice, um, J Street U, among many others, have released statements um, condemning the remarks made in the video as well, um, either on their Facebook pages or other social media platforms. And one major person who has condemned this is university president thomas leblon the university officials uh, university officials have said they're looking into this do we have any more information about what's being done to address this at this time yeah so uh university president thomas leblon he said in a statement uh wednesday that he condemns the comments made in the video calling them uh, disturbing and hateful and he said officials are working to gather more information about the incident and um University spokeswoman Crystal Nosel said that um, officials have identified students involved with the post and that um, the Office of Student Rights and Responsibilities is assessing all of the information involved with the case uh, and are determining the most appropriate uh, course of action consistent with the Student Code of Conduct. Um, She said that she couldn't disclose any further information on how individuals are investigating the case uh, for legal reasons. As we do with every other social media tragedy that we have at this school there are student organizations that are trying to help people move on from it it's where people go to find their sense of community and feel supported so what are some of these organizations who are speaking out against this trying to do Uh, so the student association in particular is taking a lot of steps to address this issue Uh, so um, both um, SA president SJ Matthews and the executive vice president uh, Amy Martin, uh, they both have already held special office hours and um, a lot of members of the SA and leadership positions are holding special office hours as well in case students want to express concerns about the um, remarks that they heard in the video. 
And um, I know the Student Association is also hosting a town hall session on Tuesday uh, for Jewish students and the GW community at large to express their experiences with anti-Semitism at GW and um, just to, I guess, get a sense of support from that. And um, GW for Israel held a forum on Thursday. When you, when you talk to students about this, is this something that they were surprised about that had been said or was it something that they kind of had grown to expect? So I spoke with the uh, vice president of GW for Israel and he said that um, he was not surprised that the comments were made but he was disturbed nonetheless by them and um, he also said that the students involved with making the video should be removed from campus in order to ensure that Jewish students feel um, they have equal opportunities to um, be safe on campus and to learn without feeling threats to their safety or security. Um, well, thank you so much, Shannon, for talking to us today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. On Getting to the Bottom of It this week, we're talking to our culture editor, Sydney Lee, about a project the culture section has taken on to profile several artists who've done murals around D.C., it's a huge project. It's what taken you weeks, months. Yeah, we've been working on it about a month now. And it's it's involving a lot of different reporters and a lot of different talent and and time and resources have gone into this. So I'm so happy we can have you on today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah. So first, just tell me where the idea came from. What was your inspiration? We were sitting in a budgeting meeting over a month ago with our editor-in-chief, Sarah, and we were talking about doing a story on one of the new murals that just went up. And she was like, oh my gosh, what if we did a huge profile of like a bunch of them? And so we started talking. We decided we wanted to make it this big collaborative multimedia piece where we can have um, it in print and then also online. So... Obviously, there's a lot of murals around the city. What drew you to these nine murals? So we started reaching out to just a ton of artists. And one of the big things that we used was the DC Mural Project website because they work with the DC Commission to basically fund artists to make all these murals um, and just beautify the city. So we use that website a lot to find artists and reach out to them through there. What has been the most surprising part of the project for you in doing the interviews and reaching out to artists and things like that? I think the most surprising thing is probably just like the vast number of subjects that the mural could be based on. It's not always just like a pretty rainbow or something. A lot of them have these really cool deep meanings um, based on the building that they're painted on. So that was really cool to hear from the artists about their perspectives. Do you have a personal favorite? So one of my favorites that we did is called You Are Welcome, and it's painted on a side of a walk-in clinic called Unity Healthcare um, on 14th Street. So the artist Sita Sidelli painted this, and it basically spreads the message that anyone is welcome in this clinic because they often give healthcare to people without insurance, for people experiencing homelessness, and for incarcerated individuals as well. And when the the... DC Art Commission is choosing the artists, how do they kind of submit their ideas? So the artist can apply to become part of the project, and then from there, the commission just kind of sees um, where there's a mural needed. So um, part of the work that the commission is trying to do is to provide provide permanent graffiti abatement to those 
to these properties that have either experienced in the past or at risk of experiencing that type of vandalism. So they'll look at different areas where maybe there's been a lot of other like vandalism in the past and they say, okay, this would be like a great place for a mural. Well, thank you so much for talking about the project today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. That's all for this week. Getting to the Bottom of It is hosted by Meredith Roten and features culture editor Sydney Lee. This podcast is produced by producer Jacob Fulvag, assistant photo editor Ariel Bader, and podcast host Meredith Roten. Music is produced by Oak Studio. A special thanks this week to Shanna Millard and Parth Kotak for joining us.